0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Even the most passive 11pm scroll on Instagram can make anyone suffer from a serious case of chasing their own tail. But as today's guest reveals, it's time to say thank you next to the labels and show up for what really matters. We'd love to introduce Vicky Lay to the show today. After scaling EdTech startup Zucal to the award-winning company that it is today, Vicky set her sights on single-handedly climbing her way to the top. But for her, the mountain simply wasn't worth the climb. Vicky is now the Managing Director of Artisan and has recently been listed on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. After years of unknowingly chasing labels and awards, Vicky now remains committed To using her years of wisdom and experience to mentor young founders and foster youth entrepreneurship which are two of her greatest passions. I'm super excited to talk to Vicky today about how we can show up for what really matters and how we too can ditch the labels. Let's take a listen. Vicky, Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh,
0: love that. So, you know, you and I connected recently over LinkedIn. And when I looked into you on all the amazing work you've done and that you were doing, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: No, my pleasure. I paid her to say that, by the way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's also just so refreshing talking to another Aussie while, while being in New York. Um, great. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell
1: us a little bit about yourself. So entrepreneur by trade, uh, did the classic drop out of university, start my own startup, obviously did education because that's all I knew back then. Um, realized that I wanted to democratize education across Asia. So that business really grew that way. Was doing that for about three and a half years. I was the chief operating officer. And then um, that business is still running. It's about to close at Series B. And um, I got headhunted to join a venture capital firm, which who, who was actually my seed stage investor. Um, I, you know, a week after leaving um, that role, he, uh, you know, called me and said, what are you doing? Have you thought about VC? I said, no, I'm a bit young. Um, but, you know, thought about all of the secrets I could learn at the investment committees and could tell that to the entrepreneurs. So I took the seat um, and then, you know, decided to, I guess, you know, do my entrepreneurial thing. And I, I decided to um, take on new projects and launched, um, you know, a couple of businesses for the firm, one of them being their Southeast Asian arm. So it was taking care of six countries, um, got promoted to managing director there. And then, um, uh, funny enough, got the, got, got the under 30 award for that, um, which actually had the opposite effect of instead of buoying me, really prompted me into asking existential questions about, you know, how um, how am I actually making my impact? How can I um, scale, you know, what I'm doing to move capital and to move technology innovation and human endeavour towards, you know, social impact? And how do I, um, you know, be serious about that? And so hence move to the US.
0: I love it and your so your story is one which I found so fascinating purely because of all the different arms and branches that you're tackling. So look before we dive deeper into your work I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing and that is where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life in your career so far?
1: Well that is a great question actually. Um, so I grew up in Sydney, Australia on the rougher parts of uh, Western Sydney, near Caramatta, um and also um, in Fairfield. So I guess growing up in that community, which was a massively you know refugee migrant community, both my parents are um, refugees. Actually, my dad um, went across to Australia with one. I think he had one shoe left by the time he got there, and that's all he had. And so um, was forced into entrepreneurship because he couldn't speak English, and no one would hire him. The, you know, the best jobs he could get were you know bread factory you know, line work, um, or very heavy labor, which was damaging to his body. And so I grew up in a family of, you know, SME type, you know, entrepreneurs, and he had five daughters, and he supported all of us, all of us that way. And I think what that did for me was it taught me grit. It taught me, um, I guess, how to be nimble and to, uh, you know, remember where you're from, And to find talent where you wouldn't expect to find talent, because I've been very lucky to have a lot of opportunities, but I always make sure when I'm hiring or when I'm working with founders or looking at an investment deal, I always make sure that I have that inclusivity. And I think that's really driven a lot of my, um, I guess, you know, the lens that I have on life. Um, The other thing as well, sort of growing up in that area, is that it makes you... um, I guess it makes you really realise how important having a network, you know, is. And I'm not talking about a network in terms of business. I'm talking about having a grounded network because as you sort of rise up and you move out into the world where everything is about um, very transactional, you really miss having that, um, that network of people who you can go to, who they really don't care what your label is or what you sell or what you do. I think that sort of, you know, having that in my past and having that kind of background has just sort of um, I guess kept me real and, and kept me focusing on what's important.
0: I love that. I think that so many times, especially with this world of social media where everything's glossed over, we've got fake friends, we've got, you know, followers What and whatnot – you can lose yourself, you know, especially when you're trying to progress, when you're trying to do things, when you're trying to stand out from the crowd. And I think it's just having those cool people. I couldn't agree more when you say that. Having those cool people to just ground you. And And just just...
1: tell you you're being an ass. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Just get off your fucking high horse. Sorry, I can't even say that. Get off your high horse and just, you know, be a real person. I think that's really important.
0: Agreed. I love that. So look, talk to us a little bit about how you ended up progressing i saw that you you know you studied at the university of sydney you know what were your technology uni- sydney technology sydney yeah. that's it what were your university days like for you
1: i'm a really bad student <laughs> it <also really laughs> took me 10 years to finish my degree i'm not even kidding because i dropped out went back tried to do it during while doing a startup and obviously um, doing doing an education startup my um, my peak period was when we had exams so I was just never never there for exams or the first three weeks of a uni so I failed multiple times um, so that's what it was like. Um, but I think in the first few years before I had done my startup it was very much about just learning who I was and you know I, I think when people look at my career they think oh you were you planned everything out and it, it was not like that way at all I was very confused. Um, and I sort of fell into things and tried just to do my best with what I had. At that time, I was one of the students who could never pick. I changed majors probably like six times, wasted so many credits just trying to figure out because I didn't know what I wanted to do and, and, you know, who I wanted to be. And I think that that's a message that's not really conveyed is that everyone thinks, everyone works it out and you know the story, you know the end picture in advance, and that's not how it is at all. Sometimes you just have to have faith and turn the puzzle pieces over as they come, because you don't get the, you don't you don't get the box, and you also don't get all the pieces in one go. So being okay with that and, and walking that path.
0: Mm. How do we learn to be okay with uncertainty?
1: Still learning. <laughs> <laughs> Are we all? <laughs> yeah. I think I think the thing about uncertainty is that one is to always um, one is to always realize that uncertainty is a good thing. Because it keeps things interesting, and it's a great learning opportunity. The second thing is, and this is something I talk to a lot of young people that I mentor, um, you know, through my nonprofits, and also a lot of people reach out, and they always talk to me about um, being uncertain with the career or not knowing what path to take, and um, or also being having something in front of them and having the task being so big that they sometimes feel that they aren't, uh, you know, they're not uh, an effective enough channel to be able to execute on that. So I always tell them to see you're, you're not the work. You are def- you are not the work and it's not your responsibility to know what you'll be working on. Your job is to show up and be the best that you can in doing the little things, in the process stuff, in having a great routine, in making sure you follow up when you, you do business development, making sure that you, um, you know, that you're good with your time management. If you do all of those things, the opportunities will come to you. The problem is that people, they get upset because they're not actually doing the little things and they think they're not hitting the human potential, but it's actually nothing to do with your career and uncertainty. It's all because you're not doing the day-to-day things. And that's something that I've learned through a lot of painful personal experience, but also with witnessing. And I also coach CEOs, um, as you know, um, but sort of just coaching and working with people is that I've noticed that trend is that human potential and unfulfilled human potential looks um you know, it's not actually your postcode or your career or whatever it is. It's a day-to-day habit. Mm. I'm I'm not even sure if I answered your question. I was just on my soapbox just (laughs) then.
0: (laughs) I honestly I was just thinking in my head the marketing like the the quotes that are gonna come from this episode. (laughs) No, I just I think that's just such you've just hit the nail on the head with that and I just think that I mean, you know, so many of our peers out there listening, you know, are so confused about mm-hmm. where they're going and, you know, whether it's in their mid-20s or they've just graduated their early 20s or even in their late 20s where they're like, I've now done five to six years in this one career and I don't even know if this is for me. And mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think it's also just the idea of just being okay. At, with It's being okay about not knowing where you're going and just exactly. going,
1: it's all right, mm. you know. And, and I, just a side yeah. a, a side thing on that, it's okay to stand stand still as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that is the bravest thing you can you can do, and it actually is what your character needs: is to stand still and to be okay without the labels, without the titles, without the the big pay packet or whatever it is mm-hmm. that you you know are used to having or are pining for. Um, sometimes that's the bravest thing you can do. Mm-hmm.
0: I love that. Okay, so Vicky. I want to talk a bit deeper into your edtech startup. I want to understand a bit more about those early challenges. Getting it off the ground was your first business. You know, what were some of those challenges you experienced?
1: Second business. Oh, second business. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> she no, was aggressive. <laughs> no, no, I was going to joke. My first business was actually... Um, a nail, I did painting nails at like seven years old and I charged all my cousins like $20 to do that. We love that. Until I got in trouble for my dad. So that was my first business. Um, (laughs) But the second, um, yeah, so it was interesting the way I fell into it though, because I wasn't actually in the founding team. There was another founding team which fell apart and the business was negative cash flows, had no money left. And it was just the CEO Mm -hmm. who was a close friend of mine from uni and he came to me and told me, all the things that were wrong with the business and how they were running out of money. And um, he told me the vision of democratizing education and I fell in love with it. Always knew I was gonna do a business, had about $13,000 I think in saved uh, cash as a student, dumped all of it into the business, unsecured, no signature. And we used that money to fund um, Silicon Valley trips and raised the capital that really formed the next founding team. laid the foundation to increase it 10x year-on-year year, um, and, um, you know, actually, I guess, resurrected the business from scratch. So I wasn't – I think, you know, they were really sweet and said, you're definitely part of the new co-founding team. Um, but I think – so I think that was the the first thing in terms of starting out, scaling the business as a first-time founder, as a first-time chief operating officer was insane. I don't know – if I would go back into it, knowing what I know now, I kind of think that the naivety in the rose-coloured glasses helped a lot because, you know, the, I was working like seven days a week. I was not sleeping. I was sleeping on the office floor, literally on bean bags, you know, for like three hours <laughs> trying to get through um, peaks. So I, I think the biggest issue, and we touched on this when I was, you know, when, when the microphones were off, were, um, you know, scaling, scaling yourself and making sure that you have a good team around you and that you know where to focus as an entrepreneur is really a tough question and something that doesn't go away. Every stage, every challenge, that that hurdle of scaling the next level is, um, is recurring. How do we
0: figure out where to focus?
1: That's a great <laughs> question too. Um, I was told a story, um, when I went, went, on my first trips to Silicon Valley, um, by the founder of Pano Daily, who, um, Sarah Lace, I'm not sure if you knew her, but she was telling me a story that she got told, which was as an entrepreneur, it's the same as going into a really messy room. The tables are upside down. There's like paint on the ceiling. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you can feel overwhelmed because all you've got is just you and a dustpan pretty much. <laughs> um, no one is expecting you to clean the room okay, your job is to know what to clean and when and be okay with the rest of it sort of being you know, shambles as it usually is. And I, so I think um, an important way to answer that question is to make sure you carve out thinking time in your week. Okay, this is something that I, that I, that I learnt later on is that you have to have um, time, quiet time with yourself because everyone will give you advice about the business. Everyone will give you advice about life. And to be honest, you're the one on the ground every day. I tell this to my my startups that I mentor or that I sit on boards with, is that um, I can can tell you things, but no one knows the business better than you. And you need to learn how to tap into your own intuition and into creativity to be able to answer those questions. Um, And so the only way to do that is to allow creative time. A lot of creatives and artists know this already. They do this, they talk about this and it's only because I'm a writer too that I actually learned this skill, is that entrepreneurs are also artists because they're creating something from scratch. And so you've got to approach business planning and business strategy and decision-making the way an artist would or a writer would, writing a book, because that's what you're doing.
0: The analogy is so great and it actually rings so true. Mm-hmm. And I just think that it's – I mean, you know, I'm a first-time founder and it's just – you feel like, at times you feel like you've got to do everything all the time. Mm-hmm. And I could not agree more. It's having those spaces blocked out where you've just, you've literally not planned anything. Couple of hours here, a couple of hours there. That often end up being the most valuable times and you actually give yourself a second to think. What, alongside giving yourself time to think and blocking out those times, what, you know, what second piece of advice would you give to to early stage founders who are trying to navigate everything?
1: Don't reinvent the wheel. Mm. Go out, speak to mentors, get mentors, get them early and get people. Don't be afraid to go to the top. That's one thing that I, that I did in my career is I was never afraid to reach out to the CEO of the London Stock Exchange, for example. I went over there. <laughs> Sending yes. a LinkedIn investor saying, "I'm here. I want to meet you," and he met me. <laughs> right? I love that. <laughs> so you know, I think it's all about right. just go straight to the top, go to the people who you admire, get those meetings. Um, that's that's definitely the first thing. Is don't don't reinvent the don't reinvent the wheel. Um, and the second piece of advice I can probably give is mm-hmm. to, I think, to really know what their priorities are in terms of in terms of creating a product. Because your job is to at the end of the day you have you know a hierarchy of who's important. Customer first. Right? You know, customer first, you know, investors, don't chase the dollars. So this is I know I'm talking specifically about startups here, but don't just chase the check because that is not a milestone. That is simply a lever, a tool to be able to Hit your goals as a business. So don't chase that and think that's the end of the. Jo- that's the end of your job. That's just the start of a very long journey. So make sure you get your questions right when you start. Make sure you're doing something for the right reasons because whatever business you're doing, whatever venture, it's it's going to be hard. So make sure your intention is right when you start and. Um, I've given you like three or four things. I'm I'm like, this is so not, this is so not, um, just one and two. But anyway, I'll leave that with you. I'm sure you're going to synthesize it in some coherent way. I I, hope.
0: I love it. It's it's (laughs) every part of this interview. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Um, Brilliant. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into your story. So- you know, you're you're progressing through your startup and and it's it's starting to do really well. You know, where did that I know we talked about this off air, but just for everyone listening, where did that transition into VC come ab- like come and, and how did that opportunity come about?
1: So I'm gonna get I'm gonna remove the filter here and get it quite real. So what happened was in the last six to eight months, I started Getting really upset. I was, you know, very, very down. Um, I was a COO, but the business had evolved so much that it was, you know, we had just raised a big round, and I was running the operations of a warehouse. Which, for anyone who knows me, knows that I love people, and so that for me, it wasn't the right role for me. Um, So I had lost my passion in that regard. And while I still really cared about the business, and I made sure. Um, when I did transition out, I made sure that I had replaced myself completely with someone who was amazing, who loved operations and loved um, warehousing and all that inventory stuff. So I made sure I did that. But um, I think what's a really important thing to note here is that um, I spoke about this thing about standing still or letting go of the labels, and I reiterate, I'm reiterating that because that's a thing that I've really suffered. Or that I um, personally dealt with is that I was so obsessed in the first part of my career. I would say up until getting the thirty under thirty award, <laughs> I was so obsessed with labels, so obsessed with how much money I made, and um, making sure that I had all of the you know all of the things that my ego wanted. And so I think I held on to the notion or the idea of being a female founder, of being this COO at such a young age. I held on to that because I was afraid of who I was without it. You know, was I, was, I, was I good enough? So I think the transition for me was learning that lesson, stepping out, and then realizing once I had let it go, within a week I had something new. So sometimes you just have to leap without knowing the next step. Um, even though you're terrified of what the consequences are i had no job lined up you know no <laughs> source of income um and that opportunity would not have manifested itself if i had not first you know metaphorically cleared the table out of the room so that something else could come in so i think that that um that's sort of how the transition came about i wish i had a better you know this is the five steps to get into V i don't don't have that no
0: mm. i mean i'm i'm I really appreciate you being so candid with us. And I just think it's so, you know, it's it's just so true. You know, I think, and I'm totally a culprit of this myself. I think, you know, we're always on to the next thing and it's what? Mm. how can we be bigger, better? How can we podcast in New York City and London, you know? But you're here. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> we made it. <laughs> but, you know, and I think at times it's almost just appreciating how far you've come mm. and just thinking, you know, well, wh- whatever's next is... It's it's already there. I've just got to almost allow it to happen to myself. Something I really struggle with, also. So, you know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening? Who you know, potentially they like the title. You know, they they want the title. They like the money, and they're really struggling to let go. You know, do you have any tips as to how we can learn to let go?
1: Just quickly. I like money too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm just, really just, just, there's nothing wrong <sighs> yes. with money. Yes. Okay. No, it's I a agree. great tool. It's when you think the money is your worth, that's the problem. Right. So I love this notion of letting go. Um, I call it surrendering. <laughs> so I think that is a skill in itself. And it's something that I, I think for people who want, who like the title and like money, they're usually, you know, high achiever type characters, right? Type A. And I think that, It's like a double-edged sword. You have high expectations for yourself and that's what makes you perform so high. But simultaneously, you hurt yourself so much because you're constantly beating yourself up. There's another way I can tell you (laughs) through experience that you can still perform high, but also give yourself a break and realise that you're not going to be perfect tomorrow, but you can have those very ambitious long-term 20-year goals and realise that your journey there is not going to be you know, you're going to have ups and downs and some off days, some off months. That's okay. That's okay.
0: That's okay. Yeah. I really personally need to hear that. I hope <laughs> all of our peers out there listening are taking this in. Vicky, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Great. So I just want to dive in a bit more into um, your current role. So talk to us a little bit about the VC, um, you know, what your focus is and your transition in the company over the last three years.
1: Sure. So um, I think on the VC side, so I started there in venture capital, working with founders and also, you know, our firm's a little bit different and quite unique in that we also allocate to incubators, accelerators, universities as well. And so it was about finding a scalable way to um, invest into startups. I'm not sure you don't know much about the VC industry, but effectively what you have is general partners and um, you know it's a very it's usually a very small firm because the economics in VC aren't very good you, it's not the best way to make money I can tell you that like from a fund perspective and so often VCs have to find different ways to monetize it's either raise a very big fund um, have leans you know lean you know you know staff um, you know st- uh, staff management team um, or actually find auxiliary you know you know you know income streams, and so I think what was interesting about the firm that I was at is because all the partners were ex fund managers, or you know they had come from institutional um, investing. I think for me as an entrepreneur and as someone who always saw VCs as gods, I was like, oh, it's like a, <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, the, the, you know they control the money. I didn't realize that they also have an issue where they have to answer to investors. So it's you think you've got it bad as an entrepreneur, <laughs> as investors you have to answer to. Your, it's called your limited partners and so um, learning about that world was really interesting for me but also the perspective that I got in my particular firm because we've got we've got funds in China, Southeast Asia, Australia, you know London, New York so it's it's quite a big firm and it was it's um, I really liked the idea of scaling and so that sort of prompted me towards my own personal mission and helped me to articulate it which was you know directing capital innovation and human endeavour towards impact at scale and um, doing it in a way that is that, you know, you have to be articulate, you have to be reasonable in your approach, you have to deliver returns and speak the language of um, private capital or private returns to be able to move the needle, excuse me, in social impact. Huge. And I think that's, it's just so
0: right that you say that around, I mean, I'm, not in the startup community, but you hear about it. it's always the VCs, the VCs, the VCs. and it's just so interesting hearing about it from you know from the VC and thinking that they've got people to answer to too and and how do you manage you know the different the different areas, the different divisions you've got around the world? So what do you think was one of your I guess early challenges taking on that role, and you said you expanded across Southeast Asia and you built that out. How did that even come about, and how did you tackle that?
1: Oh, that was just – Oh, okay, so this is probably – I think it's the way I've always approached any place I've worked at. So I always treat it like my business. I don't care if I have an equity stake or not. And usually what it does is it turns into some kind of something like that because they see my value. Um, But the way I got that opportunity was um, I just got my job done in two days and then in the three days, I would spend my time adding value to everybody in the business. So I, worked, I helped a crowdfunding startup or hope a crowdfunding platform within the firm gets launched and raise capital. You know, I, I helped with um, a data science business internally to help map the startup ecosystem so that we could start tracking startup data. And that was, you know, second business. Third business was was the Asian business, you know, and I, I think the way um, – this is probably something that I can, you know, if you're if you're in the if you're on the career corporate track, the way you get ahead, um, and this I'm talking specifically about smaller firms, you know, not large, you know, big corporates where you're a cog in the wheel. But if you can if you can um, get in a smaller boutique firm where you can really make a difference, and you show initiative, that really opens doors for you. So I was always just a yes person. I was like, yes, I can do that with time and resources but I always over communicated how I was going along that track. And even if I didn't hit performance metrics, I was always very over communicative about what struggles I was having, getting the resources of the firm, speaking with all of the partners, speaking with everyone involved. And I think so for me, the opportunity just came about because I put my hand up for, I put my hand up and I made sure I had a seat at the table, which I think a lot of um, young people, but especially women mm. don't
0: do. not yeah. do I read on your LinkedIn that you said you're on the epitome of what you call a minority among the founder board member investor circles and that you quite frankly want to change that. I find it's just so fascinating that it's 2019 and we you know, this conversation is yeah, it's just so interesting. Talk to us a little, a little bit about your experience around those boardroom tables, being the only female, being the only minority female, or just being the minority, you know. What has that been like for you?
1: I think it depends on the region I'm mean, mm. in, the country. That makes a big difference, I've noticed. Okay. Um, I think, I think there's, there's two types of scenarios. I mean, the first scenario is um, I'm the only really female and nobody cares. So in that regard, it's me holding myself back and me feeling like I don't deserve a seat at the table because of all of the cultural and gender and things that I've learnt uh, subconsciously on the way. So that's the first scenario I find myself in. The second scenario is that I do believe that I should be at the table, but due to cultural biases or gender biases um, you know, or age, even age because I am still quite young in comparison to um, peers is that um, they might not think I belong there, and so I have to fight to uh, demonstrate my my, my my validity and my qualifications. And so that's sort of the two pronged issue that I struggle with. Um, that I've learned to navigate around. And I it's funny because at the when I was at the conference today at the uh, UN Ford Foundation conference, this topic came up. This gender we had a gender panel talking about financial inclusion in in. Um, um, you know, in, de- in the developing world, and also in the in the uh, investment industry, and I think what's an important message, and I'm talking specifically about women, is that yes, we need to talk about it, but it can't be the only conversation. It shouldn't matter that I'm a woman. That shouldn't that shouldn't be part of the conversation. You should just become so good, so damn good that they can't ignore you, right? <laughs> um yes and i think that that that's probably more of the message that i want to send to women not that don't go out there with your feminism freak flag and saying i deserve this job because i'm a woman it's i deserve this job because i'm brilliant Mm. and make sure you do the work to get the skills to become brilliant so that no one can question it and that other women out there can look at you and say hey there's a role model in a seat that i want to be in because i didn't see a lot of women in the seats that I wanted to be in when I was growing up so it'd be nice if we had a new generation of next gen um you know taking on those roles
0: well you certainly are taking on that role Vicky it's it's just so awesome to see and you know as we come to the close of today's episode I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for all of the brilliant work you've done and that you're doing for being the example for so many of us you know new leaders next gen leaders who you know female leaders who are thinking you know can we do it can we not can we get a seat at the table do we deserve to be there you know your your presence your ability to speak up to continuously put your hand up really does show us that we can do it too so we really appreciate you for that thank you of course great so Look, Vicky, I could talk so much about all of your credentials. You're Forbes 30 under 30 list of 2017, as you spoke about, as we spoke about earlier. You've been on numerous panels across Asia and you've spoken at places like Harvard Uni. You know, it's your progression over the years has been absolutely phenomenal, and we're so excited to see what you do next. But the final question for today is how we finish all of our interviews here at the Peers Project, and that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about?
1: The value of pursuing what you're most passionate about is that it will help to propel you and keep you going during the tough times. Every what I've noticed is that every job, every project is hard. It's just as hard to do something small than it is to something, you know, do something big as it is to do something small. So you might as well do the big thing, the scary thing. Um, and I think that that's probably the greatest thing for you individually. And the second thing is that by, by you know, letting your light come through and showing up authentically, you just by being, are giving people permission to do the same.
0: Oh, I love it. Vicky, ladies and gentlemen, we've had an absolute ball. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Vicky lay underscore. Um, you can add me on LinkedIn. I usually always respond if you have a question or if you need mentoring. I'm always open. I do founder Mondays. So Mondays, uh, afternoons, I always take calls, 30, 30 minutes. So happy to always chat. Um, but apart from that... Uh, yeah, just just reach out via social.
0: Love it. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thanks so much, Vicky. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Piers to Piers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject.com. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.